Cherry Developer News, episode number 56 for Monday, August 19th, 2013. I'm Ken Rimple. And I'm Joel Confino. And we're here to talk about stuff we found this week that we think we should share with you um, for the, to get the housekeeping out of the way. Um, Joel, we should tell them where to go to get more of these episodes and cool stuff. Uh, and that's emergingtech.cherrysolutions.com. Um, and if you go there, uh, you'll find a bunch of stuff on there. Hopefully you found us by a Twitter cast or something and you need this information. If not, just skip ahead 20 seconds. Uh, exactly. Yes. Keep typing. Keep typing. Uh, but if you go to the podcast menu, there's the developer news. There's also TechCast, which is our uh, interview show. Uh, we have a number of interviews there from a whole bunch of open source people. Uh, and then we also have a screencasts tab that has lots of active content in it as well, including our emerging technology for the enterprise conference stuff. You can also subscribe to us through iTunes uh, and just search for developer news or search for uh, TechCast, and you should be able to find both uh, podcasts. All right, so let's see. we got a, a couple of good things to talk about this week. I want to start us off uh, with something from the, the creator of Ruby. Uh, I'm just going to call him Matt's because I'm going to get the name wrong. Um, but Matt's is a, de he's a developer and engineer and, and really bright person. In uh, He's, he's in... Um, uh, Japan, and let's see, Ruby Inside, uh, which is kind of a uh, website that, that has news and tutorials on Ruby. It's a really nice resource site. Uh, they actually have a um, an article here that links to, it's called The Future of Computing, an interview with Matts. And I thought it'd be fun to go through that. So if you go mm -hmm. to that link and you go into the Future of Computing link, um, so this was actually a little while ago, but it's worth kind of talking about. Um, they did an interview, and it was uh, written by a Chinese book publisher. So uh, it was an interview with Matts, uh, and they, he, this person translated the content over. It doesn't all completely translate perfectly, uh, but most of it does. And he's got a lot of really interesting stuff. Now, I'd like to get a hold of Future of Computing and see if there's an English language version. I, there probably is, and maybe I'm the last person to read it. Um, I'm taking a look here. I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> I went to the, the website, and it's a Japanese website, and I don't think I can read it. Um, but he talks a lot about, uh, you know, they ask him different questions about things like, what does it mean to be a software developer? He still feels, we're talking about Moore's Law and things like that. He still feels Moore's Law is, is moving along where, you know, processing power will increase. His definition was power, processing power will increase, and cost of hardware will keep coming down. And he still feels that that's a viable thing. And he kind of alludes a little later in the interview towards the fact that it's more cores as opposed to higher frequency CPUs. So, you know, and he, of course, claims, because uh, he wrote Ruby, and Ruby's happy with, uh, you know, multiple things running around, that uh, Ruby is still holding up as a language towards that kind of thing. So that's like one of the first hmm. things he has in here. That is interesting. And I do think, actually, I hadn't heard that one about Moore's Law. You know, you hear a lot of Moore's Law is dead. But yeah, right. I think he's right because when you look at the cost it would take to produce something and to deploy it with all this cloud stuff out there, it's so cheap to rent some servers that uh, the cost to deploy anything today has got to be five to ten times cheaper than it was five to ten years ago, and that sounds like Moore's Law to me. Yeah. Now, he also has a lot of interesting things to say about cloud computing and multi-core. So he's just thinking, uh, essentially, if I'm paraphrasing him a bit right um, from this, this post, uh, is that, you know, it shouldn't make sense for people to own hardware anymore. That if anything, it's a liability to own the hardware. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing that from just even the, the smaller steps that you're taking in, in your platform. Everything is pretty much rented out. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I like that quote, owning becoming a liability, not an asset. I even read something on Twitter that was 
um, ideas are assets and code is liabilities. So sense. minimize your code. Yeah. So I, I love that. That's that's a really good analogy too. Yeah, because the more logic you have to express, you know, to get something done, the more likely it's going to break somewhere. You know. Um, yeah, so exactly. To put simply, we're, I'm going to quote here from him, from the translation. To put simply, we're now entering the era of owning being a liability rather than an asset. If you had the most advanced hardware, software engineers were able to develop efficiently. On the contrary, if you didn't, then you might want to get used to the hours long waiting for the code to compile. And he laughs. Um, the rise of cloud computing platforms like Heroku is making owning a thing of the past. So, yeah, so he says that. Um, let's see. Uh, he also is questioning private clouds. He says, I don't get it. You know, basically, he, he says, I have to say I'm disappointed by some of the so-called private clouds owned by large corporations. Private clouds, in quotes. Um, the advantage of cloud computing is utilize multiple computers in the cloud, but those private clouds are essentially their internal data centers. He said, isn't that the same as owning a bunch of servers? No, he's. Yeah. I don't. No, I disagree because mm -hmm. it, it's so much it's more the efficient. Yeah, yeah. It's, exactly. It's so much more efficient because it's not for those particular giant corporations. They've got the power. Just they yeah, want to make it easy. It's not the money. Provision. It's yeah, exactly. It's so, provisioning. It's provisioning. I totally agree. Yeah, and um, he does mention he's always been in a small company, so I think maybe that's his perspective on that. You know, he's, he's always going to go to the. Uh, unlimited compute uh, platform, so to speak. And really, the most interesting thing now with cloud computing and big companies is um, semi-private, or you've got a public cloud for all your stuff, and then you get your own private stuff. So basically, you know, your stuff in the cloud still can talk to your mainframe. So, so partitioning, so to speak. So that yeah. the, you almost have like that D, uh, what is it, the um, DMZ kind of concept. Yeah, it's like where some of your stuff can get back, but the rest can't. Yeah, and I think companies are really going to start to go there. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, anyway, it's an interesting read. I mean, he's always an interesting person to, to, to read stuff from. He also has, uh, he goes into a, a discussion about uh, unbalanced skills. So, for example, if you're a software developer and you write code, great, but can you design? And if you're a design, you know, if you just do design you're not, and you don't write code, where are you going to be? His point being knowing the full end to end of things, being able to start something and then see it through are going to be the skills people want. And he's questioning actually uh, software integrators. Like what are we going to have people integrate with if the integration points become so easy, they're probably going to die out. And I think, well, okay, we better be writing lots of software then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is interesting. I mean, I've always preferred that kind of approach. Yeah. The uh, you know you you know everything. If you can't code it, then how can you possibly design it? That kind of thing. Right. He said, in my opinion, if these things don't change, those run-of-the-mill software engineers might not survive in five years. Worse, the junior to mid-level senior program to senior programmer corporate ladder is going to collapse. Big statements from Matts. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and his point then is that uh, it's not all doom and gloom later on, he says. Even though many aging technologies have been, have been or are being replaced by the web, jobs will not disappear overnight. Um, and he says, having said that, it's always good to create new things or even invent new programming languages, which essentially is what he always does. Yeah, I think, honestly, though, on the uh, supply and demand side, there's there's just way too much demand and way little supply. I agree. And unfortunately, you know, or for whatever it's worth, I think that means that for people who are even mediocre at their craft, who don't really put a lot into it, um, they're able There'll to stay job. gamefully employed. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to be a craftsman, but um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that what we're seeing over here in the States, and I'm not sure what you see in Japan, um, is definitely a, a big gap in availability of people. And it could be, and we're, we're thinking about this just to chariot for some of our future content, but it could be something... Uh, you know, around um, people wanting to train 
and people wanting to get people to take some time to learn new platforms and technologies that we're so used to renting everything and everybody, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, let's, let's get some developers for six months. Well, they got to have these nine skills. And if you don't have these nine skills, I can't hire you. Oh, by the way, we can't find anyone because <laughs> no one has the Venn diagram of all nine skills. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I, I plugged it here before, and I think it's a really good read. There's something called uh, Why Can't Good People Get Good Jobs? It's a book. Um, Why Can't Good People Get Jobs? And it's uh, a book by – and I mentioned it because it's a good side note read. It's got Peter, this guy, Peter Capelli. He uh, is a professor at Penn, at, I think Wharton, but at Penn. And um, it talks about this, basically this perceived gap of skills and how – Companies are so used to expecting everyone to do all of this by themselves, but that was not the trend five, ten years ago. And so you're not finding people that have everything you want, the way you structure your jobs and you search by keywords. They're not going to all be there. Hmm. Side note, I'll put a link to that in our show. I'll throw the Amazon link so you can research the book. But it uh, kind of goes hand in hand with some of the things that uh, you see referenced in that Matt's uh, Yeah, because it kind of flows to recruiting, too. If your primary recruiting platforms are keywords-based, yeah. then you you tend to sort of take a certain view of people. Yeah, and you know, like I said, we're, we're looking into maybe uh, something in the future with that. And there are some other people that we've had at ETE, for example, um, that are fantastic in this kind of thing. Uh, Joanna Rothman, for example, she has a really good book on hiring people, which is like, how do I hire an engineer? You know, what am I looking for? Am I looking for this skill or am I looking for really smart people that are adaptable? And I think it's really smart people that are adaptable is going to win the day and then investing in them because they are not – you know, they're an asset. They're not a liability. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a whole discussion this whole industry needs right now. Mm-hmm. Soapbox. All right. <laughs> I'll get off that soapbox. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Moving on. Hey, look, I was recording that time. Isn't that great? Awesome. Let's talk about Debbie. And it's 20 years old. Poor Debbie. Happy, and, bur- happy birthday, Debbie and Ian. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. It's the uh, oldest Linux distro that's still around. It's, it's amazing. Um, very stable. Has probably the widest hardware support. Is uh, close buddies with Ubuntu. Um, what so. do you think they do? do they high five digitally or what? Yeah, you know? <laughs> I'm not sure if that. But um, hey, buddy, how you doing? Pretty significant that you've got this uh, 20 years of uh, Linux. Yeah, I just remember. Uh, we might as well do a little bit of reminiscing. When did you first play with Linux? Was it Slackware? Oh man, I don't remember the long distro. Time I just ago. remember me and my dad in the basement uh-huh. with a PC that was sort of torn apart, <laughs> and we're trying to get the drivers. It's always the drivers. It was always the drivers. Still is always the drivers. <laughs> it still worked. This whole thing would work if only the drivers. The sound doesn't work on my laptop. Uh, it's gotten a lot better uh, on some pieces of hardware, uh, but yeah, I remember doing um, the partitioning of my drive, and I had my precious Windows partition, and I knew that if I did the wrong thing. <laughs> It you was were gonna all going to die. And I had to use, like, there was all these tools that you could run, and they were all floppy disk-based yeah. to, like, move partitions around. <laughs> right. And they never worked. And you just were in a world of hell. But, you know, you look at any of these newer distributions, they can really do all that in a GUI and, you know, resize volumes in some cases. It's very cool. Um, but, yeah, I remember the early days, and nothing worked. <laughs> then you was... finally got the shell. It was, like, 78 hours later. Right. And you're like, I haven't brushed my teeth in three days. <laughs> It was like a three-day event, but you were like... All to get the dollar sign. But you were like, you know what? I didn't pay 20K for Solaris. Right, exactly, because we all knew those pizza boxes that we couldn't afford. All right, well, happy 20th birthday. Happy 20th. Uh, and this is an article. It talks a little bit about it, and it's it's background by Alex Blewett uh, on InfoQ. Um, and yes, they claim that Debian has the widest hardware support of any Linux distribution. 
uh, compiling not only the kernel, but many of the packages used in the distribution for multiple platforms. Very cool. Welcome to fun. All right, what's next on our list here after we're, we're happy, happy birthdaying? Um, let's, let's get into some stuff around Maven. Um, <laughs> figure we'll throw this out. We'll get, rip the Band-Aid off right now. Yes. <laughs> Joel and I were talking before this. He had a, a, an article on the release plugin and on continuous integration. So someone wrote that basically you don't need the Maven release plugin anymore. And in fact, he says that the final coffin, uh, nail in the coffin is Git, right? Yeah, that was a really interesting article. So if you've ever done a lot of Maven, um, the release plugin, you probably have a love-hate relationship with it. <laughs> um, it works, it's kind of a pain, it's slow. Play its way, Yes, and it will work. Yes. Customize it, and you really might as well write your own script that does all the commands itself. That's the thing, and like, and, then, and they say that too. Even I mean, I've talked to them about that, and yeah, at, at Sonatype, and they said, "Well, it's the way we do it, and you don't have to use it. And in fact, we're just calling a bunch of other plugins anyway." But the truth of it is, everybody uses it, and right. so, <laughs> so this article basically shows how um, this this author came up with some ways to avoid using the release plugin before. And he had this process called Maven on steroids, which was kind of interesting. And it was there to just minimize time and make this build faster and do less commits. And the, the release plugin like does things multiple times. And it's really because it's preparing and then it's performing. For example, checking out the repo. Yeah. yeah. And so it's it's running tests and it just takes forever. And like it's I said, a two-cycle thing. It's like you have yeah. to re re prepare the release and then perform the release. Yeah. And, and it's so it's, it's slow. Uh, with Git being orders of magnitude faster than Subversion, though, um, you know, he, he comes up with a process where basically you are getting rid of snapshots. You are taking every single build. You're checking it out clean with Git. Then you're setting the version number with the Maven versions plugin to the build number. Then you're building it, tagging it in, um, tagging it in Git, and you're then uh, pushing it to your artifact repo like Nexus. So basically, if you look at Nexus, you would just see a bunch of builds, every single build, would have a corresponding artifact in Nexus. One problem that, I, and so I think that makes sense. I mean, I think there's parts of that that definitely makes sense. And in continuous integration, uh, a lot of Maven's whole concept of snapshots and releases, um, there's some good parts, but but everybody sort of trips over it too. Like yeah. snapshots happen automatically, but they're kind of weird in that snapshots a variable. It's not an actual build number. Then releases are good, or they sort of make sense. They're repeatable, but you have to kind of like manually kick them off. And then what am I going to do if I'm doing continuous integration? Now, blue team calls timeout. So <laughs> <laughs> some people, probably most of you, are going to uh, you know know continuous integration. But for the three people that are like me, um, to make sure we, we define that process as you know a training background. What is the thing we're talking about? <laughs> true. You're welcome, you three. Um, <laughs> let's define continuous integration. Sure. Does that mean every time you build, you push it to something, and it's all Always live. Is that essentially the term for it? it it's oh, not continuous integration. Continuous delivery. That's yes. Continuous delivery about. is um, you're pushing it down a pipeline. It's not always going to be live. That could be true, but it's ninety percent of the time not going to be true. Okay. But it means that every build will enter your build pipeline. Mm. You get to define what that is. That was very radio. And, uh, <laughs> And then um, <laughs> typically I think it's a nice mix of automated tests. So you run a couple automated tests before you bug the testers. Then you, you bug the testers. Yeah. But then they can push a button when they're done and say yes. Release And it. then that goes. And maybe then there's another step where sure. a manager has to. But, so but the it moves along point, the chain. Yeah. The point of the continuous delivery, though, I think, is that it's completely visible. There's one place people can see, like, why isn't it built in production? Because the manager didn't click the button. Right. And then it's 100% automated. So Cool. So that it can flow. All right. So that basis, that means you're constantly building, putting it in that pipeline, 
someone saying, let's look at what that quality of that build is right now. Here's the current build. Let's try it out. Hey, it looked good. Push it up. Yes. The next step. Yes. Okay. And so Maven was not – there was like some kind of – didn't like totally flow with that, at least the release plugin. You couldn't exactly figure out how that would right. necessarily work. Were you going to push snapshots? Well, and you're doing lots of commits to the palms. Even if a few things change or one thing changes, you might have to touch 12 palms yes. in, a, in a large app. So there's a fair amount of modification to get that done. So if I understand correctly, um, if we go through this again, so the idea is that every time you do this, Git clone is apparently orders of magnitude faster than like you know pulling something out from subversion. It is. When I started using it, I'd actually first to check to make sure it actually did anything. Right. Because <laughs> uh, it uses compression and all sorts of stuff. It's very cool. Um, and then, so the point is that you make sure that your project POM versions are just some label that'll always right. be the same. Right. And it's a snapshot label. So there, his example is 0-snapshot. Right. Okay, so now I hear lots of popping skulls all over the place <laughs> from all the Maven Continuous integration, people going, you know, uh, I get it. In fact, that's what I, I hung up. I'm like, why? And uh, But the point is you're never committing a change to that. Right. And so the idea is if you're in the snapshot development mode and you're working on something that needs the snapshot because you're working on another module of the same project, and you just say, go get the snapshot. I suppose you could keep committing the snapshot every time. Sure, you, you know, could have different. Snapshots. You could have one O and two O and three O right. um, as your snapshot changes. So if you have a large project, you only want to work on one piece of it. You could de- you could keep sending snapshot builds. Um, so that you could do a release, you know, or, or I'm sorry, you could do a maybe deploy of the snapshot and then go through this process if it all worked. Um, but every time you do a build, you clone it. You use the Maven versions plugin, which is a nice plugin if you've never used it before. So versions let you set the versions of the POM uh, directly and even recurse down to the children POM and such. And so that will change the version while the build is taking place. And the reason that's important is when you do a Maven uh, package and it creates the package to install uh, and then deploy, uh, it names it based on the version. Right. And so the trick is, is just locally setting the version with Maven versions colon set. And then you do the deploy to get it into your Maven repo as a released version of the next build number. And then you tag uh, your, your, your copy of the repository that was cloned, and you say, this is the tag for this label for this version. So later on, a bug happens two months later in that version. You go back and you, and you basically you know, check out the tag, I, I guess, or whatever yep. you want to call. I guess it's checkout, isn't it? Yeah, it's check out the tag yep. in Git. Um, and then when you pull that up and you build it, you're looking at that version that was deployed. And I think in this guy's scheme, so much easier. Yeah, there are no snapshots. I mean, snapshot because you're right. And normally, you know, in a lot of a lot of kind of CI environments and Jenkins, you're going to have to have snapshot builds. They run all the time. Yeah. And then you have release builds. They run when somebody pushes a button and says, "Now nah, I want a new release." But this you're does releasing away with all the time. Yes. So this, you don't even need snapshots. That's exactly. Right. This merges the two concepts. And the only thing I'm not sure about is. Um, Things like Nexus have uh, automatically delete snapshots, so you don't end up with like quadrillions of these. Because this is going to be everything. But these aren't going to be snapshots once you remove the dot snapshot from the end. Because I don't think you're building with a snapshot. But no, but you'll you'll start to fill up Nexus basically. So when you put these lots of releases, with lots of releases, so you could end up in a large company or something that changes a lot. You're going to do many builds a day. I got an answer for you on that one. What is that? You write a Maven. uh, You write a Nexus plugin. 
that does the same thing as snapshots only in a, in a release and you look at date stamps and set up a panel for it. The only trick to that is then those certain ones maybe you want to stick around. Like what if something like represents right. um, the stable build and then another – so so I want like – so so I imagine, know the answer to that too. Okay, another tag. So I think you have to actually tag it with that. Now, yeah. okay, so this is a problem actually because you're assuming that every release candidate could be a release. Right, and so somehow you have to make that known that it's a release. You've got a yeah. point there; it's yeah. a really you, good one. Yeah. So there was some, there was some, uh-uh. you know, sanity to Maven having snapshots and um, and releases because you know, again, you're imagine you think of APIs that you're going to combine. Well, here we have you know version two zero, and we have version two one, and we have version two two. Right. They have their own like chains. How many versions back of a particular artifact are you going to support? This works good when everything's in one tree. Yeah. But everything kind of goes. You know, Completely. when you have like lots of teams all working and they are all thrashing. This sounds like a great idea that needs more research and yeah. that it's a, it's, it's a nice concept. And I think in a small team working on one project, this could be freaking awesome. Yeah. But how like this interfaces into larger teams yeah, and I continuous think it delivery DOA in a lot I'm of not, places. I'm yeah. not sure. So well, we'll have to watch what's going on. When was yeah. this written? This was actually just written. So I'm waiting for the comments. Let's see. Uh, does he have comments? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one person I think said, yes, we shouldn't use snapshots if you're using continuous delivery, so that right. makes sense. It's, you know, the other option is, and, and here's an angle, uh, you can use multiple Maven repos for when you elevate, and then anything that gets elevated and delivered goes into those repositories, and everything else is considered like a quote-unquote snapshot repo. That is good. That's, that's a, the way to do it. The multi-repo thing is a it's good gotta idea. It's got to be the way. That, and actually, Nexus has a support in that. That's So Nexus is a product. I have but, a comment to reply to this guy with. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. Yeah. Sweet. All right, that's a fantastic one. Thank you. Uh, and again, we'll have a link to that one. Uh, that one is on Axel Fontaine's website, axelfontaine.com slash blog. And uh, you can find it there, and we'll certainly put that up on our show notes. Let's shop for a robot army while we're at it. It sounds like fun. So on the on the lighter side, uh, yeah. Enter. So, yeah. Um, Ars Technica has an article about uh, the Oklahoma uh, unmanned aerial systems, or in other words, a day at the don't call it a drone show. <laughs> so apparently, what's happening is this is kind of significant. Um, the FAA is going to start letting. Drones, but you're not. But they don't. The industry doesn't want to call them drones. They're not drones. Well, see, drones kind of sounds like it's going to shoot a Hellfire missile at you. So, and it um, might. <laughs> so there's all these kind of products that are now coming to. Uh, and the FAA, if you didn't know, the Federal Aviation Administration does not allow American companies uh, to develop in, uh, drones. So a drone could basically just be a model airplane that you use for with a camera for some sort of commercial purpose. Right. And they have crazy restrictions on these because I guess you know. People are they afraid of them. Yeah, and they haven't really figured out how to Privacy. make sure they don't like destroy things. And so, um, aliens. If, yeah, if you have like an autonomous model airplane, you're not allowed to fly it in the U.S. You know, and so the FAA is going to figure out some way to let these things work for industry. Like you can um, use them to map out fields, take pictures of farmers' fields, and you know, um, show them where certain crops need nutrients. There's like a million commercial applications for these. Sure. And so deliver uh, pizza. That'd be yeah. great. <laughs> so it's pretty interesting to. Uh, to see that this is going to, and currently they can only be developed overseas because uh, you're not allowed to test them here. So soon, I guess in December, the FAA is going to going to um, 
appoint these different places where you're allowed to basically go build and test a drone. And there's various states are like vying for that. Like, oh, like Oklahoma wants to be big and, right. you know, and, and these sort of things. Maybe, you know, Lancaster County will throw its hat in the ring. There's a lot of fields <laughs> out there you can fly a drone over. Lots of room. But, uh, you know, it, it's really interesting. There's a bunch of uh, these different UAVs. Uh, and all the kind of things they can use in uh, in industry, you know. And then some of them just look like little model planes, but this one is uh, from Taiwan called the Swallow P, and it an aerial mapping drone, and it uh, you know deploys and it'll go out and map, um, you know, maybe useful for companies to do logging or geology. I don't know what. Yeah, it's good to see something you know positive come out of the drone uh, concept, you know, because what it has represented for the rest of the world, you know, is duck and yeah. get out of the way, yeah. um, and all the the things that are negative about it. But it's just a technology, and um, you know, if you have tools that can make things easier to do, uh, and 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 do research with them, that's a good thing to have. But what might be kind of crazy is you might like start looking. I mean, as soon as it happens in December, who knows what's going to happen? But like. There may start to become like, you know, drone noise and congestion and like, you know, oh, the drones over the Schuylkill Expressway have crashed again you know, <laughs> you know, or something like that. You know, forget the uh, the um, traffic copter. That may be the traffic drone. So, this, right. you know, th- this could be coming quick. These things are a lot cheaper than uh, big aircraft. I think what we really ought to do is just go back to the 1980s and find what is the movie? I'm looking for it now. RoboCop. <laughs> no, no. Um, it's a really bad one. Um, batteries not included. Have oh, you ever seen yeah. that movie? Oh yeah, no, that, that's not good. Wasn't isn't that a, a number five's alive? Uh, no, that was no. something else. No, this is a, an apartment block tenants seek the aid of alien mechanical life forms to save their building from demolition. No, I and they're little tiny, one. and they're little tiny aliens that you know, like the size of a pie plate. And I think that they're coming once they see that we become sentient. Yes. And that we have little drones flying around. They must be little people. So they're going to come out of the space and they're going to like try to kick the bad landlord out. It's going to be great. <laughs> but two like ones that we could see soon. I just saw there was one for law enforcement. So uh, eyes in the sky for law enforcement. That is exactly where we'll come. <laughs> yeah. And buildings. <laughs> yeah. I can th- see it. And there's one for building surveillance. So your uh, your landlord may, may be flying drones around to see who's uh, you know who has who a has cat. a chihuahua. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> And now, hopefully, they don't have small health viruses and take out the chihuahua. Although, if I had one, I'd probably want it done. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I think we've offended the whole planet now. Um, right. Let's move on. Uh, let's go to do, 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 things I wish I were told about AngularJS. Mm. Um, here's my little you know pet project, AngularJS. I like uh, reading about it, talking about it. I think it's an interesting platform. Uh, you know, cover off the ball a little bit. People are starting to use it a lot. And some people don't like the multiple scopes feature, you know, like they kind of nest scopes. Um, there's a bit of things that could probably be a little more consistent between different ways of doing things in Angular. But it's people are adopting it and using it. Um, and so this guy on the 10th of August, uh, it's dot com, And he has a blog on there. Uh, and so actually, it looks like he kind of updated it recently. And he talks about one first thing that hits me really hard is the learning curve. Now, so Angular is one of those deceptively simple frameworks. You go through the documentation. It's a single-page web application framework. Um, you can have it so that you've got menus and things and all sorts of stuff, and you're running a client within JavaScript, and it's very easy to switch your views. They have a templating tool, and it's quick to get started. And his point is, take Backbone, for example. Extremely difficult to get started because there's no really deep documentation in a simple get start uh, kind of use case. But once you learn it, there's not that much to learn. So his point is, 
Angular is deceptively simple, essentially. Hmm. Very easy to learn to get started, but you have lots of questions after about a month in, and you're scratching your head going, how do I do this? Whereas with Backbone, it's so small, you build up what you need from it. Once you learn the, the paradigm, that's all it is. Hmm. And I think I see that from people like Steve here, uh, Steve Smith, one of our developers, who's done Backbone and feels very comfortable in it. Um, he looks at me and goes, Backbone's not that hard, just use that. you know. And, and I look at Angular and go, but this is so nice. And then you start working with it and you realize there's a lot of sophistication to this platform. Hmm. So that's the first thing he comes up with. Uh, the second thing is that Angular, you create modules. And a module represents a collection of code, and it can be injected into another module. Think of it like an import of a package, right, in Java. Um, and so then you can separate your services or your controllers or whatever layer of the application you want, and they're kind of you know insulated from each other. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, lots of templates and stuff on there just basically create ng module, this is a standard module called app. And everyone throws everything into app, and then it makes it difficult for you to separate your dependencies and mm. test them. So his next comment there is, use that, you know, break up your modules, uh, and and so that way you can test easier and isolate things easier. Um, and then uh, you know he talks a bit about scopes, um, talks about the fact that you should be using directives when you write when you manipulate the DOM, and I agree with that. That's kind of the way it wants you to do things. Is you write directives, they're kind of like tag libraries but they can operate on an attribute or a tag or a CSS style. Um, and, and so you can make your own and they can emit HTML. If you try to do it from the code, it doesn't work because there's this whole refresh process mm. and DOM updating process that really needs you to do something that acts upon the model somehow. And the best way to do that's through a directive. They're also the hardest thing to learn in Angular. <laughs> so you get to the point where you want to do those and you really start scratching your head because the, the method names uh, that you build aren't obvious and the way you do it's not obvious. So I'm looking for those AngularJS and Action folks to get a lot of stuff out there soon about that. <laughs> and then he mentions also that the router on AngularJS basically works with location.hash, which is the end of your URL with a pound sign, or the HTML5 version, which doesn't have a pound sign, just kind of demarks it some point past the page as a series of, of URL pieces. Uh, and he says that you don't necessarily have to use the router. You could use another one if you need to. So that's an interesting little article. Read it, see what you think if you're an Angular person or getting started in Angular. Yeah, that is interesting. Angular's on my list of things I want to learn soon. Yeah, and you know, some of our developers have started working with it and then kind of bumped up against some limitations and, and have had experience in other things. Uh, and have some negative criticisms as well as some positives as well. So be interesting to take a show and look at Angular in depth at some point in the, on the tech cast, I think. Yeah, it seems like Angular and Ember are the two main uh, competitors in that space. Like in the true framework level. Yeah, absolutely. All right, cool. Um, Sencha Browser Survey Report. Yeah, so the people at uh, Sencha who make uh, a couple products, Sencha Touch, Sencha um, EXTJS, they... Uh, Produced a browser survey report, which was pretty interesting. Um, so let me see how many developers. Oh, cool. 450 developers in the community for the, and they asked them about what do they use, what do they develop with, and what more importantly do they care about uh, in the upcoming years. Like when are they going to finally drop support for certain versions? So um, not surprisingly, you know, a key finding was that um, for personal browsing, well, this might be surprising, but for personal browsing, 50%, 57% of developers use Chrome, 26 Firefox. And Time then, out. 
Yeah. The 26 on Firefox haven't discovered Chrome yet. Yeah. That's kind of how I yeah. went. I was yeah. like, I'll use Firefox. And then I realized it got slow and bloated. Yeah. Tried Chrome, saw the developer tools, went, yeah, I'm using that. It was, I mean, I did switch too, and I really didn't want to. I really wanted to stick with Firefox. No, I've got loyalty. Google Mail and links and everything, and so it syncs. It's like, you know, done. It, it is yeah. nice. Then they look at what are the developments. So that's personal browsing. Yeah. But how about development? Platforms, that's a lot closer. 41% use the most current version of Chrome. Sure. 31% Firefox. And then it falls off uh, And I way think off. that's Firebug, right? Exactly. I mean, people the know it's Firebug. Good. It's hard to switch from one to the other. They're, they're different enough that you work day to day in one, you're probably going to prefer it. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get into, there's some other graphs, but there's um, browser support plans. That's kind of interesting. So who's planning on supporting um, IE, like for instance, IE8? So who's going to actually support IE8 into 2015? Oh, God. So 39% of people said they, they would support IE8 into 2013, 2015. Um, wow. eight, uh, 21% said they would drop the support for IE8 next year, and that's going to coincide with uh, Windows XP, um, Microsoft, you know, end of life set. So there's no more security updates. That right. should really take a toll, unfortunately, on IE8. But yeah. then you've got – and then you've got um, 16% of people said that they're going to drop IE8 support this year. And uh, 25%, 24% said they don't have any support today. But the part that's kind of shocking, and this is where you know, my top. product's in there, <laughs> was that, was that, the, that yeah, that we've got 40% of most of the people say that they're going to keep supporting it to 2015. Uh, that's a oh lot of people on a very old browser. And how old is IE8? When was it released? Windows XP. Well, Vista, oh, wow. before Vista was XP, so XP was, who, who, who even knows? 2001. A very long time Something ago. Something like that. Yeah. And so... Um, and then if you go down, um, there's a pie chart that has the importance of these different browsers for users. Look at that. IE6, so, are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah. no, what says that um, 80%, if we just went with, like, I guess, for users, 80% um, of users, IE6 is not important to them. Right. Then you get to IE7, 50% of users, there's only 50% of users where IE7 is not important. So it's crazy that 50% of users there's actually some interest in. And then of IE8, the numbers are even more uh, more usage. So, twenty one percent IE eight is not important for their users. Twenty one percent it's somewhat important. Twenty thirty percent it's very important, and twenty eight percent mission critical. So, in really rough terms, it's a quarter of them are not important, a quarter somewhat important, a quarter very important, and a quarter mission critical. It means three quarters of these people um, still have some connection to IE eight. Or, I wonder. You know, we all think that we're living in the modern age, right? That our APIs are the best that we're working with right now. And then you go f forward 10 years, yeah, this is the best stuff ever, you know, because it's newer and I, it's evolving. But I wonder as people start programming JavaScript in a more elegant way, in a, a smarter way, and they use these APIs, like if you look at apps that were written for IE8, there are probably a lot of handwritten JavaScript against individual browsers, right? It's very difficult. I mean, Hadle, we support IE8 because we support um, all sorts of customers. This would be true of us. These, yeah. these statements, we spend 50% of our time, probably, of our UI time. Chasing bugs with exactly. IE8. It's and just what do you do there? Do you have literally blocks of code that say, if IE8, then in then do this block of code? Well, we use, there's different things. There's this uh, HTML, like HTML5 shim is a nice uh, JavaScript client or right. JavaScript library that you can use to get some HTML5 things. Um, we just avoid certain techniques so right. um, that we, we try not to do what you described, like have if blocks. I'm not sure if we have any, but if we do very, very few, right. it's mostly just um, design our limitations around what IE8 can do, which is painful. I mean, I think this is what jQuery originally tried to do for people, which was, let's, we'll handle 
the browser issues for you and you just use dom you know like css matchers and things like that to find stuff yeah and i mean i blame vista for all this because vista yeah. was so horrible that businesses didn't move yeah so they stayed on i they stayed on xp yeah, and that's really platform it. forever yeah i don't yeah. think the businesses could care less about the browser they were interested in the, not then in the operating system and as we get to newer software and you know people are walking around with their ipads and their android devices and using modern browsers you'll see them want to pull people into more modern applications. I'm sure that a lot of those, you know, 5% that need IE6 are probably, you know, big defense contracts or, you know, uh, government installations or very large enterprise software that cost a million dollars to install across a million desktops mm -hmm. that aren't, well, that was a dollar desktop. That was really good. <laughs> um, but, you know, that aren't going anywhere anytime soon because there's no um, feeling of urgency. But there will be once they stop finally supporting XP, which they've been pushing off forever. Yeah, and and Microsoft really has actually even wanted to. I guess just business is pushed back. Yeah, they're like, no, we'll sue you or something. Yeah, <laughs> so so I'd expect these numbers actually to shift a whole bunch next year when all these businesses decide they can't use XP anymore. And we'll revisit that then. Yeah, cool. I think that's it for us today. No, open desk. Sorry, open desk. Open software office furniture. All right, now I got to see this one. So <laughs> I didn't look at this link. So, so while we're talking, okay. so it's just while we're talking about everything open source. So uh, you know, sooner or later, people are going to open source everything. So they've open source office furniture. So you come here, you pick the office furniture that you want. You can download it and print three D print it, or oh you can find a person. There's a person in Pittsburgh who will actually. You can find local people who will print it out, fabricate it for you, and mail it to you. So here we go. Um, open source office furniture. It's so I'm looking at actually the first pretty cool. Thing is a desk that is basically a pair programming desk. It's got yeah two. That's kind of cool. You it is actually kind of cool looking, right? Yeah. It's pretty simple designed by somebody who seems like they're a good designer. Yeah, little shaker style maybe. Yeah, yeah. So you can 3D print it. Doesn't seem too bad. Somebody has I like, like a the little, CNC mill. It's got a little notch in the middle of the desk where you can kind of get up close to it and. Give each other a big hug. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but it's got that nice slot in the middle. Hey, this is pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Open desk. So, so you can 3D print it, huh? Yeah. So open. you can download the plans for free, and then you just pay somebody if you want them, them to fabricate it for That's you. That's pretty cool. Or yeah. you just make it. Yeah. You can just build it yourself. So open, open source uh, office furniture. Very cool. And then you can go to the makers and find all these different uh, companies. It looks like there's 12 or 13 of them. Well, it's got to be an uneven number. But... Um, Pretty cool. Pretty neat. All right. Hey, go make your office furniture. And, and, and uh, when you're done, tell them the dev news told you to do that. That's right. <laughs> on your Debian computer. <laughs> on your Debian computer with a floppy drive and one terabyte of storage. Why not? Okay. That's enough for damage for today. So uh, for Monday, August 19th, uh, this is the developer news. And uh, I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Joel Confino. Go out there and code something, would you?